Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This is your co-host, DJ LeClear. And this is your co-host, Warning. This podcast may challenge your views on environmentalism and push back on conventional environmental thought with science and data. We hope you approach with humanism and an open mind. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, A&E, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. In this episode of Climate Fix, we are talking about carbon neutral fuels made using nuclear reaction heat and energy and how nuclear technology can be used to make rocket engines of the future, thus making space more accessible for exploration. One of the ways in which we can decarbonize the transportation sector besides electric vehicles is to make fuels directly from atmospheric CO2 from previous combustion. Essentially, such a process would recycle carbon into hydrocarbon fuel allowing us to use our existing infrastructure of petrol cars, trucks, trains, ships, and planes without adding extra carbon to the atmosphere. Given the laws of thermodynamics, such a process would be energy intensive, which is why nuclear could hold the key to its viability. While we fight the greenhouse effect here on Earth, there has been quite a bit of renewed enthusiasm for space missions to other celestial bodies, especially with private space companies like SpaceX. However, these rockets we use today are slow and require huge amounts of chemical fuels. Again, the incredible power of the atom might allow us to turbocharge rocket engines in order to reach destinations more quickly and with more payload. Our expert on the show today is John Bucknell. He has a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Cleveland State University and has a master's degree in systems engineering from the University of Michigan. John led advanced engineering teams at Chrysler and General Motors. After this, he was hired as a senior propulsion engineer for SpaceX, working on Raptor rocket engines. Currently, Mr. Bucknell is a propulsion scientist for Divergent 3D in Torrance, California, a startup that is developing 3D printed vehicle technology. He has technical works published on the subject of high efficiency, low operational cost internal combustion engines, economic carbon-neutral synthetic fuel processes, and high-performance air-breathing nuclear rockets. He has 12 U.S. patents to his name. Wow, that is quite the track record. I'm looking forward to having a fantastic discussion with such a knowledgeable individual. But first, let's go over some recent news in the nuclear power and nuclear science sector. Some nuclear news tidbits to keep you all up to date. Let's start with some nuclear power plant closures coming up. Next era's Dwayne Arnold nuclear plant in Iowa is to be closed in 2020, even though the NRC operating license is valid until 2034. The single plant represents 600 megawatts of carbon-free electricity generation, 20% of the state's emission-free power. 
Annually, the reactor prevents 4 million tons of carbon dioxide entering the atmosphere, essentially taking 800,000 cars off the road. That is horrifying to climate progress. Unfortunately, we have another closure to bring up. The United States' oldest commercial nuclear power plant, Exelon's Oyster Creek in New Jersey, is officially offline. In September, the 640 megawatt plant operators conducted their final scram procedure, ending the fission reaction permanently. The plant has been chugging along since 1969, providing 57 years of constant, pollution-free power. In total, Oyster Creek is estimated to have prevented 143 million metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions over its lifetime. In total, this is the equivalent of taking 31 million cars off the road for a year today. The sad part about this is if nuclear was considered high priority in terms of carbon-free energy support, such a plant could potentially safely operate an entire century with proper maintenance and upgrades. This is very frustrating given the desperate need to cut emissions globally to prevent catastrophic effects of climate change. Something needs to be done in order to get our priorities sorted out, or we will face many more closures in the next decade. On a positive note, we have recently witnessed what many would consider the first pro-nuclear power protest in the world. This is actually really cool. Taiwanese government officials have been accused of rejecting democratic processes by ignoring signatures for a pro-nuclear referendum, which would appear on the November ballot. Most people in Taiwan, including environmentalists, support nuclear to limit land use on the small island nation, as well as to help keep them less reliant on dirty, expensive, imported fossil fuels. The nuclear phase-out has also resulted in severe energy shortages last summer, causing widespread residential blackouts. The government malfeasance led to a hunger strike by activist Shi Su Huang, who was then hospitalized for malnourishment on September 19th. The activist garnered the written support of renowned climate scientist James Hansen, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Rhodes, and popular Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker. Talk about making a statement. Nearby in China, Westinghouse Nuclear completed its first AP1000 next-generation pressurized water reactor. On August 14th, the reactor ran full power on the grid for the first time. China is really pushing for massive nuclear power rollout in order to meet electricity demand and dramatically reducing its notoriously bad air quality. As of now, China has 44 operational nuclear reactors and a whopping 13 reactors under construction. This is a very important step for Westinghouse as they have been plagued with financial overruns. Now they have proof of concept and can experience a learning curve, hopefully driving down the cost of future AP-1000 builds. Back in the United States, we used to have four AP-1000 units under construction, two at VC Summer Plant in South Carolina and two at Vogel Plant in Georgia. Due to cost overrun, VC Summer's two units were canceled mid-build, wasting billions of dollars. But luckily, Southern Company is still planning to finish the two AP-1000s in Georgia. On September 26th, the Vogel Plant's joint owners ordered to continue construction of the project, despite being almost $13 billion above budget. Though controversial, bringing this project to completion is a breath of fresh air for the industry in America. Hopefully, once Vogel is finally finished around 2021, VC Summer will choose to finish their AP-1000 units 
as the building process will most likely be perfected. Time will tell, given the extreme regulatory burden always faced by utilities for nuclear power, as compared to carbon-intensive natural gas. On a positive note, in the manufacturing realm, module reactor startup NewScale has selected a company to start manufacturing their innovative design. BWX Technologies, Inc. in Virginia, with the assistance of Precision Custom Components in Pennsylvania, was awarded the contract out of 83 firms. A Utah utility has signed up for testing and deployment of 12 60-megawatt electric NewScale modules, which will be constructed on the grounds of Idaho National Laboratory, scheduled to come online as soon as the mid-2020s. This is very exciting, and NewScale is finally crossing the regulatory finish line after more than a decade of bureaucratic red tape. The rubber is finally hitting the road. I am so excited about this. To me, NewScale is like the SpaceX of nuclear power. When it comes to nuclear startups, some will inevitably fail to get off the ground. This is exactly what has happened to Massachusetts-based firm Transatomic. Founded by MIT graduates Leslie Dewan and Mark Massey, this waste-eating molten salt reactor concept company has announced with a heavy heart that they are ceasing future operations. All is not lost, as they will be leaving designs open source so that others can build off their vision. I was really excited about this concept, and it was hard to see them fail. It will be interesting to see which American nuclear startups will make it or break it as competition does its thing. And finally, we want to mention in an exhaustive analysis put out by MIT, entitled The Future of Energy in a Carbon-Constrained World. This 275-page document explores the economic issues of nuclear deployment and how to remedy this with some evidence-based policies. The conclusion reached is that nuclear innovation is a requirement to meet increasing global energy needs while addressing the severe threat of greenhouse gas effect. A massive nuclear power manufacturing infrastructure is necessary, and economic policies need to be reworked to accommodate nuclear for a swift transition off fossil fuels. Inevitably, anti-nuclear energy wonks rejected this analysis outright, even though this came straight from one of the most trusted science universities in the United States. Thanks for bearing with us getting through all this news. The more episodes we put out, the more concise we will become. We figured the more informed listeners are on such a critical issue, the more solidly the pro-nuclear movement will grow. Coming up, we'll hear from our expert, John Bucknell, and the use of nuclear technology in synthetic fuels and space propulsion. Stay tuned. Joining us is engineer and overall futurist junkie, John Bucknell. John, thanks for talking with us. Hey, thanks for uh, having a chance to get me to talk to your listeners. Based on what you told us, you're kind of a jack of all trades when it comes to keeping up with various fields of technology. Could you give us a little background about yourself, what you do, and your independent studies? Yeah, for about 25 years. I did not know what field of research I was going to get into when I started this uh, journey. I did find I was interested in transportation, and I ended up in automotive engineering early in my career, and I spent about 15 years there, but I had a feeling I wanted to do aerospace a bit more, and I had a chance to join SpaceX about um, eight years ago and worked on uh, rocket engines while I was there, 
And more recently, I've been working in a, another startup called Divergent Technologies, which is uh, developing a new manufacturing technology centered around additive manufacturing and multi-material optimization. So this is what I do during the day. Uh, my personal interests have been focused on um, engineering economics and application of technology to solve large-scale problems. Published a few papers on, on a variety of topics, trying to drive costs down. Done a, a number of different types of uh, research. Uh, one was a uh, an ocean solar energy-powered fuel synthesis uh, rig, which was able to generate methanol from the solar thermal energy in the ocean. And that one wasn't quite as cost effective as some of the more recent stuff. And I became interested in uh, nuclear power about six years ago and, and with deep interest. Certainly, I've known a lot about it following uh, Kirk Sorensen's uh, you know, revelations about the molten salt reactors about 12 years ago. I wanted to know more, and I taught myself a lot about nuclear energy. And I've applied since then nuclear power to uh, rockets and also fuel synthesis directly. All right. Could we ask you what got you interested in just nuclear in general, besides Kirk Sorensen, or was that pretty much it? No, no, for sure. Um, you know, I'm a student of all forms of energy conversion. My uh, my interests are very broad. I'm always looking for what the best solution is for any given problem. I did study nuclear briefly about 20 years ago, but I hadn't caught up with what the, the latest thinking was. Uh, and since the renaissance, uh, you might say, in uh, nuclear power in the last 15 years, uh, what brought me back into it, I, I found that uh, my knowledge was very poor in that subject matter. and. Uh, in order to see if that uh, solution set could be applied to some of the problems I was interested in. I, uh, I dove into the topic uh, very deeply and, and brought myself up to what the what current thinking is on a, in a lot of subject matters related to, uh, related to nuclear power. Okay, well, that's cool. Uh, DJ, is that a good enough response, you think? Yeah, yeah. So it kind of goes without saying, climate crisis is definitely one of the most challenging tasks we have to face and uh, decarbonizing the transportation sector is definitely going to be, in my mind, one of the most difficult uh, sectors that emit emissions that is going to be uh, the most difficult to decarbonize um, as the third largest emitter of greenhouse emissions. Can this be done without redoing global transportation infrastructure based on electric propulsion? Yeah. There, there's a lot of arguments about how you should utilize the, the energy we're using today. Certainly, um, the, in the form of final consumption, only about 20% of what humans consume is in the form of electricity. It's uh, often in the forms of heat or, or mobility. And in a large part, uh, it's the transportation needs that uh, drive the chemical energy storage that we have today. Um, it is, it's inexpensive. It's easy to handle and transport. Uh, a lot of our existing infrastructure for the last 100 years is based around it, and it's just a matter of where does that chemical energy storage come from and how uh, can you apply it. Uh, certainly current air transport has no solution set that allows electricity to work, um, neither does uh, heavy-duty marine or even heavy-duty truck all have needs for long range and high powers, and those are all what I would consider heavy-duty consumers and um, electrical energy storage doesn't uh, is not well suited to those applications just because the energy density of uh, electrical energy storage is mm, between one and two orders of magnitude less dense than what uh, chemical energy storage is. And when you say uh, chemical energy, you mean 
hydrocarbons, right? Um, certainly, um, hydrocarbons is one form, but hydrogen energy is also uh, one of the candidates for uh, storing uh, electrical energy or, or any form of energy for reuse. Uh, hydrogen has its own. Hydrocarbons is the, the, the major form that most people think of, but hydrogen also is a strong candidate for chemical energy storage because it is a very reactive uh, chemical, but it has uh, storage and handling problems. So, John, I, 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 I think you'll definitely... Uh get a lot of uh, resistance to saying that electrical propulsion is not going to be the full answer because I know right now electric cars are definitely a hot topic right now and I know anytime that I try to mention that they might not be uh, the full answer I get definitely a lot of kickback what do, what do you have to say about that certainly there's um, what you might call fashion in, uh, in a lot of topics. Certainly there's a whole contingent of people who want electric to be the answer. And they're, they have a whole, it's gotta be solar power, it's gotta be renewables, and it's gotta be energy storage as electricity. And those are the only answers. And you ask yourself, how did you get to this point where the only answer is electricity and only way to get the electricity is from solar power? And somewhat it's just pushing the, uh, idealistic viewpoint that you know solar power is the ultimate source of energy and that we should be using it directly. Uh, the hang-up is that uh, renewables today are their intermittency problem is not trivial. You can only get uh, enough solar power eight hours a day, maybe five, uh, to run you know humanity's uh, needs, and so there's no baseload power generation. So you start introducing the um, the energy storage challenge on top of um, the uh, the generation portion and frankly the economics of the energy storage are non-trivial and it ultimately becomes a wishful thinking on the economics perspective because despite the fact that we can do it we can't afford to do it so the uh, energy storage costs if we were to replace our grid completely with solar power and electrical energy storage and we're talking about batteries here that are becoming cheaper for cars, but still are extremely expensive. It would cost us, you know, replacing the entire grid, and it's on the order of trillions of dollars just for, just for the U.S. Little everywhere else. So the conventional solutions still work, and they are very low cost. And one of the leading indicators for well-being and humanity is how much energy we consume per person, and that has to go with how much it costs us. If it's nearly free, which most of our energy generation is today then everyone benefits. And if it's too expensive, then only the, the, the privileged get to benefit. Okay. Because one, one of the things I've, I've heard about from companies that are building solar and, and energy storage is they're actually competing with transportation when it comes to batteries. I mean, you have this huge need for batteries and transportation, and then now the energy sector wants it as well. And I feel like that can be a, a big problem. Is is that a big problem? Oh, well, for sure. The the hangup is that uh, the you know the lithium ion batteries that we're talking about are a specific construction. They have um, needs for cobalt and and it's cobalt in particular, but uh, a few other rare earth metals to generate the the cells for the cell, for the batteries. And those are limited resources. There just isn't enough to rebuild the entire infrastructure. I mean, there's challenges for copper mining. Um, there's challenges from a lot of perspectives on, on replacing everything with energy. So yes, it's true that uh, the uh, the grid energy storage and the transportation sector are both 
uh, pulling on a very small uh, generation market, right? We talk about uh, Elon's Gigafactory, but the fact of the matter is it's not very giga because um, most energy power generation stations are, are gigawatts, and there's tens of thousands of them. So you would need equivalents of tens of thousands of gigafactories to generate um, enough energy storage over the next 30 years to replace the grid entirely. I've always been fascinated with the idea of turning carbon dioxide from the atmosphere back into hydrocarbon fuels. Can you tell us a little bit about such a process and its energy requirements? Has this ever been done before on a large scale? Yeah, so the whole chemistry of uh, chemical energy storage is it's fairly well known. The Let's see how I want to how how do I want to approach this? Yes, so Phil, the uh, the use of um, carbon dioxide for the atmosphere, uh, creating synthetic fuels, is a is a process that's been well known for quite some time. Uh, synthetic fuels have been around since at least the Second World War. You might not know this, but uh, Germany did not have uh, hydrocarbon reserves when when they were fighting the uh, the Allies, and they actually uh, mined coal and by a process called the Sabatier process, were generating all their lubricating oil and uh, aviation fuel from coal. So the, the chemical basis for creating liquid fuels from um, source uh, syngas, which is a combination of uh, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and hydrogen, is a, is a well-known process that has been developed uh, over many years. And really, if you have a, uh, a source of uh, energy, whether it's electricity or heat, you can generate synthetic fuels from feedstocks. And the biggest challenge is getting um, the adequate supply of hydrogen, and carbon is usually fairly straightforward. Uh, most hydrogen today is uh, uh, created by um, converting natural gas uh, through a similar process uh, to hydrogen and, and carbon dioxide. Similarly, these uh, because the hydrocarbons are what we call fungible, you can um, turn any hydrocarbon into any other hydrocarbon by a fairly straightforward chemical process. You can also um, convert uh, any of these source uh, uh, feedstocks into um, simple hydrocarbons such as methanol um, and methane, and then you can uprate them uh, from short-chain hydrocarbons to long-chain hydrocarbons. So th that chemistry has been well-established. Uh, there's a noble... Uh, prize-winning physicist named George Ola, who um, wrote a book about 10 years ago called uh, The Methanol Economy, which describes um, how you might use recycled carbon dioxide uh, to sustain the chemical energy storage indefinitely. Um, and he has been proposing that, or um, promoting that for quite some time. And the, the fact of the matter is that no one has quite figured out how to do it economically because of the hydrogen uh, generation energy requirements. However, there has been some research on this topic that looks like there is a, a way out that will reduce um, our costs dramatically. A couple of uh, research institutions, in particular um, Idaho National Labs, which primarily works on applications of nuclear power and development of new nuclear reactors, has been studying hydrogen and hydrogen economy for uh, a very long time. And they have converged on a solution set called um, high temperature electrolysis, which uses the heat from the reactor uh, to generate electricity and to electrolyze hydrogen or water to provide hydrogen. And that those feedstocks, that's the, mo that's the highest conversion efficiency process ever uh, um, developed, which can take source heat to hydrogen at about 60% conversion efficiency, which is substantially higher than if you were to generate power um, and then go straight to uh, 
high pressure, high temperature electrolysis, which is only 75% efficient of the electricity generated. So those processes can be as low as 20 or 30% efficient. So uh, nuclear power and its source heat can generate um, chemical energy storage in the form of hydrogen and hydrocarbons, fairly straightforward. All right. And you talk about feedstocks, turning one source of hydrocarbons into another and polymerizing hydrocarbons to longer chains. But the idea would be to use CO2 as a feedstock. How easy would that be? So certainly the uh, the challenge is extracting the CO2 from its where it is today, which is stored in the atmosphere as a relatively low um, concentration uh, feedstock. Or conversely, you can uh, extract it from ocean water. Ocean water is certainly a thousand times as dense. And it actually, I'm going to back up because it's uh, not just ocean water. But to answer your question, Phil, there's several sources of carbon dioxide um, beyond what uh, combustion engines provide today. So um, existing energy generation plants have almost pure CO2 going out their stack. That can be recycled. But you can also recycle any CO2 from air or large bodies of water, whether it's seawater or fresh water. Because the seawater is so much more dense, you can extract the the seawater uh, fairly uh, the CO2 from seawater fairly straightforward using uh, another electrochemical acidification process that, interestingly enough, was developed by the U.S. Navy because they have similar problems. They're out at sea. They have many uh, nuclear-powered vessels, and they need uh, aviation fuel to power their vehicles. So there are well-established processes for extracting the carbon dioxide from the air and the water to uh, provide them as feedstocks to these. Is that the work that uh, uh, Naval Research Lab is doing? In Key West. With the, yeah, so Key West uh, with Heller Willauer is the, uh, is the primary for that research. I have, I've seen that literature before too. And But the trick is with this is the energy required to turn, to make your own fuel from carbon dioxide in the air or the water is it just gonna require a lot more energy than the combustion that you get back out of it? Um, frankly, no. The, the energy level is about the same. Um, so hyd- hydrogen plus oxygen you know, generates water, and that's a very energetic reaction, right? That's the one that we're going to use, use for rocket engine development. You can, it's almost a completely reversible process. There's some losses, but the energy you put into it um, is, is almost identical. But the challenge is, is that the uh, you're going from one form of energy to another, and usually you you're have a heat engine on the other end. So that heat engine is converting it to mechanical electrical power, and those are generally between a third and a half of the energy um, are, are extracted uh, for useful work at the end. Uh, why is the role of nuclear power so important in carbon neutral fuel synthesis? What kind of things can nuclear power do to make this process easier? that other technologies cannot. So thanks, DJ. That's actually uh, quite correct. The uh, nuclear power is able to generate a very high temperature process heat, which is a cornerstone in uh, chemical synthesis processes because the reaction rates are so much higher as your your temperature of your reaction is high. So you can use the process heat much more easily to to run these chemical reactions than other sources of energy, such as uh, the the electricity from solar power. In fact, um, one of the largest consumers of thermal energy is the production of concrete, which uses the heat to drive off the carbon dioxide and water out of lime so that you can um, 
mix it with water again and create concrete down the road. So today that's usually uh, created by um, gas-fired burners to, uh, to generate the lime. So there's many other uh, processes that you can use that, uh, that process heat to uh, run chemical reactions that are beneficial to humanity. So what you're saying, John, is that the high temperature of nuclear is precisely what we need to drive a fuel synthesis reaction uh, constantly and efficiently so we can just produce these huge quantities. Absolutely. Um, so the interesting thing is, as we said earlier, that the the primary consumption of, of energy on this planet today is about 85% hydrocarbons. But in final form, about 20% is electricity, and the rest is, uh, is generally some form of heat. So if we were to uh, decarbonize our uh, energy infrastructure today, you have... Um, 80% of the, the consumption is in the form of heat. So in order to scale that to uh, large, uh, large levels of energy that are uh, currently being generated uh, through hydrocarbon combustion, uh, nuclear process heat is the best candidate. Is it conceivable that next generation high temperature nuclear reactors could be used solely to produce mass quantities of hydrocarbon fuel to meet global demand? What would such an industrial setup look like? That's a great question, Phil. Uh, certainly, many of the uh, reactors that are being designed today are designed for baseload electricity generation. But the fact is that these are very flexible uh, energy generation systems, and it's quite easy to extract uh, that energy for a number of purposes, as we were describing uh, earlier, which chemical processes is a, is a very uh, strong use case. Um, and certainly uh, to get to that level to reduce uh, the hydrocarbons that are being used uh, today that are pumped out of the ground, you would need a very large scale uh, generation cap capacity and the synthesis plants that go with it. Um, to make such a system work, you would need a, a large um, a large number of reactors generating uh, this process heat and the chemical synthesis plants have some demand. Certainly they'll need a source of carbon dioxide so putting them next to bodies of water would help a lot um, and but you can extract it from air it's just a little bit more challenging that's uh, a little slightly more uh, capital intensive to build such an array. Um, but uh, most of the designs that are being proposed for high temperature uh, electricity generation uh, are all suitable for uh, next generation hydrocarbon uh, production. Cool. So the, the trick would be to basically make its own factory to produce the heat to drive the reaction and a place to get a source of hydrogen and a source of carbon. And once you have those things together, then essentially you could have a petro uh, petroleum factory. And you might know that petroleum refiners today are a large consumer of, of hydrogen just for operating these hydrocarbons. But the product that comes out of these refineries is primarily uh, trans transportation fuel. But similarly, uh, a large fraction of what comes out of petroleum refineries is used to make plastics. Uh, nearly all plastics um, come from some sort of hydrocarbons. So uh, these plants that would be generating uh, synthetic fuels would also be the process plants generating the feedstocks for the what would what the petrochemical industry would generally use um, to to make plastics and other uh, consumer goods. So would you imagine that we would have probably like a distributed amount of these 
reactors obviously located near a, a large body of water um and when i say distributed I, I i say that because i know that trying to develop these fuels and then transport them to where they're needed that right there can be a huge energy cost so do you see having these kind of spread out or have you thought about that yeah so so certainly one of the other uh, promises of these uh what have been called modular reactors is that they're they're small and they can be close to their consumers um, especially for um, like maybe neighborhood uh, heat for um, you know the northern territories, which is cold for and for electricity generation for for running those um, those those homes, those businesses that are uh, far away from uh, useful generation. But certainly today, all hydrocarbons come from a few sources and are transported worldwide via oil tankers and and pipelines and whatnot. So. To leverage that existing infrastructure, you only need to uh, generate large quantities in, in certain um, certain places because the the process of uh, developing a, a plant usually the way it works the the capital intensity gets lower and lower the the larger the plant you build so it makes more sense to me to try to build um, a few very large plants as opposed to making many many small plants just because of the uh, the, the scale. Of developing it but that's not to say that you couldn't uh, picture a future where you had a chemical synthesis plant that's providing uh, lots of uh, different product streams um, into whatever the local consumer needs and be flexible and be able to generate several different kinds of uh, chemical feedstocks that can be used for other things like uh, ammonia for example is a, is a great one that uh, our um, agriculture heavily depends on for the, the crop yields uh, for um, you know, for human consumption. So those are all great uses for nuclear processing. We hear you used to work for SpaceX. What did you work on, and how was your experience working with Elon Musk? So very, uh, very interesting. I get a lot of uh, questions about my uh, experience working at SpaceX. Um, I was hired uh, away from General Motors, where I was working at, in their advanced uh, technology powertrain group. Uh, to work on the next generation uh, rocket engine for SpaceX's uh, interplanetary transport system. Uh, most people know this uh, rocket engine is the Raptor. Um, I was the first full-time engineer working on this, that, uh, that next generation uh, chemical rocket engine. Um, it was a very, uh, a very good experience for me. Uh, I, again, I was interested in working in aerospace when I entered the industry, but the opportunity just never presented itself, and having that uh, that interest from um, a company like SpaceX was very good. Uh, certainly, my uh, you know I learned a lot about rocketry. That uh, the uh, only company developing uh, rockets of, of any. Uh, uh, let me see. I'm going to back up here. Um, certainly, SpaceX at the time was uh, and continues to be the leader in rocket engine development. The, the example I like to use is that there is a. Um, refinery in uh, in Arkansas that manufactures uh, you know what's called RP1 which is the, the grade of kerosene that's used for rocket engines and that uh, refinery generates all the RP1 for use all around the world and while I was at SpaceX the uh, the Moreland engine development was consuming 98% of the RP1 produced anywhere on the planet and that was before the Falcon 9 had flown so um, it was great working with a team that was actively developing rocket engines and, and uh, I was able to be part of that and work on their next generation rocket 
Um, I took the you know early concepts and turned it into the first uh, hardware demonstration. Um, when you do rocket engine development, often you build what's called a subscale version of the rocket. Um, the Raptor is a very very powerful rocket, and we built uh, what's called a calorimeter, uh, which means that you're um, developing a combustor that uh, represents how the injectors and the oxidizers mix the fuel and propellants, the fuel propellants together, such that you can have a stable combustor. And we built a one percent scale uh, combustor of the of the Raptor combustor, and it was the um, the highest uh, performance uh, calorimeter combustor ever developed by anyone anywhere. And I was able to design and develop and uh, deploy that, as well as the all the um, the test sites in our test facility in Texas to be able to test this next generation rocket engine. And did you ask me a question about Elon as well? I forget. Yeah, uh, how was your experience working with uh, Elon Musk? Um, it's, it was interesting. I'm um, certainly the thing that most people maybe not I don't know, and I don't know if this is true anymore. At the time, I was employee I think 1300 at SpaceX, so they'd been around for a while. Um, they were founded in 2003, and I joined in 2011. Um, Elon was still as part of the hiring process. He interviewed everyone. Um, and I, you know, I had the opportunity to speak with him in that regard, um, talking about what uh, what kinds of things that you know I'd like to work on and what he uh, what his vision for the future was. Certainly, um, you know, before I had my interview with Elon, I you know we have this interview with the managers, and the managers want to know what your um, work history is like and what you work on, what you're interested in. And I opened my mouth and asked why uh, why doesn't uh, Elon want to go to the moon for us instead of Mars, and they said, oh, no, 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 don't, don't mention that path again. You'll, you'll be, uh, you'll be sad. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, um, I didn't have a whole lot of direct uh, interaction with Elon. Um, certainly, I worked for uh, Tom Mueller, who was employee number one at SpaceX. He's the head of all propulsion, and I was working on a, you know, a side project. The, uh, the Merlin program was um, deep in development and was having, um, you know. Uh, issues as, as big programs do. So, um, my interactions with Elon were, were relatively limited, and I got them mostly secondhand. Um, he was not in the office hugely because, of course, he was running uh, two other businesses full time. So, you generally he's there like you know two half days a week, and you'd see him run out the back to run to the Tesla Design Studio about halfway through the day on Thursdays and things of that nature. So, um, in general, I'd say the experience was super positive. It was all a very uh, startup-like work environment, All uh, lots of lots of young uh, enthusiastic engineers. Certainly, I was uh, 40 years old when I joined the company, and uh, I'm six months older than Elon. So, um, we between the two of us, I think we uh, brought the average age of the company up by a year, year and a half, all by, the, all by ourselves. One of your big interests is nuclear rocket propulsion. What is a nuclear-powered rocket, how do they work, and why are they desperately needed for manned exploration of our solar system? Well, that's a very uh, interesting question, Phil. I'll see if I can uh, condense rocket science down to a, into a short answer. Um, <laughs> it's actually pretty straightforward. Um, rockets, uh, unlike other forms of propulsion, carry everything with them. Um, if you think about it, a rocket engine is just a big heat adder. Um, we call that heat enthalpy in um, thermodynamics. and what ends up happening is you add more heat uh, to a gas, it gets uh, more energetic and less dense. And rockets work by um, transfer momentum, right? So you uh, accelerate um, a fluid, in this case a propellant, out the back of the rocket and it conversely pushes the rocket forward. The faster you push it, the, the more oomph you get, and the more of it you push, the more oomph you get. 
um, rocket uh, engines in general, most people are familiar with chemical rockets. The, the most efficient ones uh, combust uh, hydrogen and oxygen because as it happens, that's a very energetic reaction and the propellant, which comes out the back, water, is a very, relatively low molecular weight. And it's interesting, for a given amount of energy you put in, um, the, the lower the molecular weight of the combustion products, the faster it will accelerate, and it's, it's the higher its exhaust velocity. So those we talk about um, specific impulse when we talk about efficiency of rocket engines, and that's um, a measure we use that describes how many pounds of thrust uh, you get for every pound of fuel. That you uh, that you combust. So um, an ISP of a, a, a high-performing hydrolox, which is hydrogen oxygen, is a, is propellants, is about 450 seconds. So for every pound of propellant, uh, you get 450 pounds of thrust. So interestingly, um, that's a very low molecular weight uh, propellant. Um, but nuclear rockets are um, providing that enthalpy by the the fission uh, process directly. So if you find a propellant that's low molecular weight, in this case uh, hydrogen is a really good candidate, uh, you can accelerate that um, propellant up to very, very high velocities. And you can get um, 900 seconds or 1,000 seconds of, um, of ISP out of a nuclear rocket that, um, you know, that's double what a, a combustion rocket is. So for uh, uses other than uh, the launch case, which nuclear rockets directly don't perform very well. Once they're in space, they do very, very well. Um, the, by doubling your specific impulse, you can cut the time for a trip to Mars by half, or you can take double the, um, double the amount of payload uh, to the same destination. Um, and certainly, um, it's easier to find the propellants at the other end because uh, you just need water, and if you have a what's called a bimodal nuclear reactor, you can just uh, split the water and the hydrogen and oxygen, take the hydrogen with you, and go wherever you want to go for your next destination. Where chemical rockets, although uh, hydrolox engine could use those some same hydrogen and oxygen, they have no energy generation capability once they get where they're going, so they can't synthesize the rocket fuel to go somewhere else, and that's a bit of a challenge. Um, because if you want to go anywhere, you need to have enough propellant to go there and back again. And chemical rockets today uh, struggle uh, with that. In fact, the uh, you may not know, but the, the the big Falcon rocket, the BFR, and the BFS, the big Falcon spaceship, um, can only get to Mars. And then they have to have uh, rocket fuel made there already to come back. So nuclear rockets can do that trip there and back without refueling, which is um, you know, key to some of these exploration uh, missions that uh, don't have any way to produce fuel at the other end. So essentially a nuclear rocket, you don't have to rely on the chemical reaction of the fuel to produce the fast-moving particles. At the, out, at the end of a rocket, um, uh, but with, with a nuclear reactor, as long as you have just some stuff, be it hydrogen or uh, like a low density gas or not low density low mass gas uh, as long as you just fill up that tank again your nuclear reactor is good to go and you can 
yeah, fire up your rocket. Is that what you're? Is that kind of what you're saying? For sure, for sure. Nuclear um, rockets are relatively propellant agnostic. Um, for sh- uh, one of the um, proposals that have, have been um, thrown about is that you could use um, you know the ice water that you find um, all over the solar system as propellant directly. Now, the fun thing about water as a propellant directly is that uh, its ISP is pretty bad. It's about 230 seconds, but you get um, the difference in mass in thrust uh, increase increase. So you get like a factor of five improvement in thrust, even though you're taking a factor of five reduction in on a specific impulse. So if you need a, a space tug or a water hopper, um, in particular, it's been proposed for extracting water from planetary bodies and moving up into orbit. Um, the water would be a great propellant. But yes, any just about any fluid can be used uh, in a nuclear rocket. So I guess one, one question that's kind of been lingering in my mind when you were talking is, uh, would you would you say that that at the moment a a nuclear or having nuclear as your propulsion um, is that the only feasible way to be able to get there and back at the moment uh, ha, well that's a great question DJ so there are other ways um, one of the other ones ways proposed is um, uh, what we might call ion type propulsion um, there's a, a guy doc called uh, Dr. Chang Diaz. He was a former astronaut, and he's uh, he's behind what's called the Vasimir, which is a variable specific impulse uh, engine, and it uh, is very high specific impulse. It's in the thousands, uh, two to three thousands, but uh, um, it's accelerating ions um, out to very high velocities to provide thrust. Um, and that high uh, specific impulse allows you to, you know, again, go further or, um, you know, have higher payloads. But the fun thing is, is that it's uh, not very much thrust. Um, it's almost uh, uh, a law of physics that for every increase in specific impulse, you have a proportional decrease in thrust. So these Vasimir engines, um, which again need a very high power source and probably needs to be a nuclear reactor to power it, um, would have relatively um, poor performance for. Um, relatively short missions because the thrust is so low it takes them forever to get up to velocity and then forever to slow down again um, but the, that's one option another option is uh, some of these what we call uh, solar sails that use uh, photons um, to react against also similar problem very very low thrust very high efficiency they're not consuming anything um, and so other authors uh, science fiction authors and scientists have proposed using lasers uh, to propel those um, um, sails elsewhere, but uh, again, you need a uh, large death ray somewhere uh, to propel your uh, photon uh, sail. Um, so those are other options, and there's at least um, one or two others. Uh, there's been recent work uh, by Dr. Robert Zubrin talks about a dipole drive, which uses the uh, magnetic fields of the solar system to move around. Um, I'm not sure how that one works exactly, but um, the only one that's been uh, developed heavily is uh, is a nuclear rocket, frankly. NASA actually created a working nuclear rocket engine in the late 60s called Kiwi. Has much research been done since then? Without getting too technical, if you were to build one today, how would you do it? Great question, DJ. So yeah, there was a, a project that um, was done in the early 60s through about 1972. Uh, it was called Project Rover, and it was 
again trying to develop um, nuclear reactors for the application of space in space propulsion. Um, they developed a series of uh, eight or ten different uh, nuclear rockets, and Kiwi was one of the last ones. Um, and they built uh, a variety. Um, there was one called the Phoebus 2B, which was the uh, five uh, five gigawatt reactor, very large, um, very high performance. Actually, I did all the testing in uh, a place called Jackass Flats, uh, northwest of Las Vegas, which is right next to Area 51. In case you're curious, um, and uh, all, all, and that was where all the um, nuclear bombs uh, were tested. But all this was. Uh, uh, basically ended in 1972 because the nuclear, uh, you know, air, air burst test ban treaty, and somehow nuclear rockets got bent into that, and so the research basically stopped. Um, in the mean, in the meanwhile, um, you know, this there's there was lots of data generated. They they spent the equivalent of about two billion dollars in that uh, 12 year period of Project Rover, and so it had been studied a lot all the way through the um, the 80s. Uh, several other uh, nuclear rocket designs that are evolutions of those have been proposed in the late 80s and early uh, 90s. And frankly, NASA has been um, in process of uh, resurrecting that technology in the last 15 years. In fact, uh, it was announced about eight months ago that um, what used to be called Babcox and Wilcox, I think it's called BXWT, is has a contract to uh, build a, uh, a new nuclear thermal rocket, um, you know, in the next uh, next two years, and they got about 20 million dollars to do it. So it seems feasible that we will have uh, nuclear rockets again here very shortly. Um, if I were to do it personally, um, there's a little bit of a challenge of uh, where uh, certainly uh, NASA's Stennis Space Flight Center and in Louisiana has a facility that can uh, test uh, these rockets. Otherwise you'd have to develop a facility that um, basically captures all the things that come out of the exhaust and, and cleanses them and make sure they don't get in the environment because of the, uh, the challenges today uh, with uh, regulatory concerns about fission fragments getting out of the environment. But it's a relatively mature technology. We think we understand the tools have been developed very well over the last 60 years so the numerical simulation is allows uh, people to develop um, uh, nuclear reactors for rocket applications. In fact, uh, one of the biggest things that's happened recently is that uh, because these tools are so good that uh, several organizations have figured out that low enriched uranium, which is uh, less than 20% U-235, um, is capable of making a nuclear thermal rocket if you use the right amount of uh, moderation in it, as opposed to the all the reactors that are developed to date, which are all highly enriched, which is I think generally between 93 and 90, you know, 98% enrichment. I mean, that sounds like one hell of an engine, and hopefully, it's what takes us to Mars in the in the future. Um, many people don't realize how important nuclear technology is for space exploration. Do you think space applications could be a way for people to not be so scared of the word nuclear? For sure. Um, it's. Uh, I think that the, the largest challenge for uh, nuclear in general is, is just education. And if uh, space applications um, open the eyes and ears of uh, people about the the benefits and you know qualified um, you know openness to what the the true dangers are as opposed to the imagined dangers, that's uh, would be a great way for. Uh, people to become more comfortable with uh, the use of nuclear power for all applications. Or uh, could you talk about how space probes 
use already use nuclear power. That's a great uh, point. Okay, yeah. Phil. So most people may not be aware, but um, there have been many uh, applications of nuclear power in space already. Uh, there's been something called an RTG, which is a uh, Basically, a um, uses nuclear uh, fuel as a as a heat source that runs a thermoelectric uh, conversion device. Uh, many uh, of our deep space probes already have them. The Curiosity rover on Mars has it uh, today, and um, you might not know this, but the Voyager spacecraft, which are two of them have exited the the solar system already, have been using them for almost 40 years. Yeah, and I think it's one of those misunderstood things that. If you really want to get anywhere past Mars, where solar is greatly deteriorated, nuclear power is the only way to do it, and it's the only way we have done it. So if people are anti-nuclear, well, you know, you can't necessarily say, you, you know, you're for space exploration because they need each other. Absolutely. So that's uh, also a great point. Most of us don't realize that uh, solar power drops off dramatically uh, as you go uh, further and further away. If you've seen pictures uh, looking back uh, from some of the orbiters out at the Saturn and, and Jupiter level, the, the sun just looks like a slightly brighter star. And that's the, the truth of the matter is that the solar power is basically non-existent you know, past the orbit of Mars. Even at Mars, it's only a sixth what it is here in Earth orbit. So any of, any of these uh, missions further out, if they're going to be manned missions, they're going to need an energy source. And the only one that we know of that will work. Is and and, and now that I think about it, even even your, your solar sails that are powered with these really powerful lasers, those powerful lasers are going to need a source of energy. Uh, for sure. And I was hoping we could touch on a little bit. One of my areas of research is not just you know nuclear rockets, but the application of uh, nuclear rockets for benefit of all. Um, one of my primary areas that people have heard uh, of me is because of uh, what's called a, a nuclear turbo rocket, which is a, a very high performance uh, launch capable rocket engine. And what it does is it uh, uses a, a nuclear rocket in combination with uh, combustion with the air because that hydrogen propellant burns very, very well in the presence of oxygen. And it improves the performance into orbit for a launch mission by somewhere between a factor of 10 and 20 relative to chemical rockets. And because of that uh, high performance, the cost to low Earth orbit can be reduced dramatically and by somewhat similar to that factor of a payload uh, fraction change. And the bigger question becomes, you know, once you have that low cost and uh, access to space, what do you do with it? And I have all sorts of great ideas, but certainly if your listeners have uh, ideas on what to do with, with nuclear power in space, I'd love to hear them. The, the full name is the Nuclear Thermal Turbo Rocket, and I think we've talked about it a little bit earlier up in the introduction before we started this interview, but some of the links to my media online have some presentations and YouTube videos and whatnot that our listeners are welcome to uh, familiarize themselves with some of the other applications of nuclear power. Well, I, I, I could ask a question about it. Um... Do you think carbon-neutral fuels made with nuclear power will be part of the future? Yeah, Phil. So that's a, a good point. Certainly, um, if we are able to generate new nuclear reactors at, at lower cost and lower operation cost than we have today, the chance is that the synthetic fuels uh, will also be lower cost. Certainly, the cost that we pay today for hydrocarbons dug out of the ground is not related to what their extraction cost is, but rather, you know, the people the few countries and groups that control the, the pieces of ground where that hydrocarbon is present. And certainly what 
should we use uh, those those hydrocarbons that are already in the ground for? Should we use them to burn and turn them into you know transport velocity, or should we use them for something else? And considering they're a finite resource, a renewable path to uh, synthetic fuels is a great plan. In fact, it can probably be very much more economic than what we're paying for hydrocarbons a day for transport. So it should have a great, a great future and something that reduces the cost of transportation for, for all. So I very much uh, favor it. And the, uh, the challenge is, is getting those uh, next generation reactors online such that we can utilize them for purposes like so that. You, you, you hit on a very important uh, aspect there of what, what do you do with the fossil fuels that you still have? And I know that's a big uh, geopolitical uh, issue because there's a lot of a lot of people out there that rely on that to basically run their entire country. Um, they'll definitely like to see their fuels going for a good price and, and still being used. You talk about the democratization of technology and energy and whatnot. That means that everyone has access to it and at their and for their own purposes and the way our energy infrastructure is set up today it's not democratized at all we have to come to a very few number of players and you have to pay what they want to charge you i think it's great for liberty to have that uh, that ability to democratize energy and again at the lowest cost for all so that we can utilize it for what we we find the best use for it is and especially too get this climate issue under control yeah for sure i think once if you could get to the point where democratizing uh, the energy then your whole challenge about how to control the climate almost becomes a secondary issue because it'll fall out because the economics will drive everyone away from the way we do business today well thank you for your time john we really appreciate it yeah hopefully uh this is useful for for you guys for your um your knowledge on, on where the, the world can go and um, your listeners can, can benefit from the same kinds of uh, you know, information on how you know, nuclear is beneficial for all. You can learn more about John Bucknell from his profile on LinkedIn. Also, last year he gave a very informative talk at the last Thorium Energy Alliance conference, which you can easily search for on YouTube. Lately, we have been working on putting more media out into the interwebs. For example, we made our first mini-vid to spread on social media. You can find it on our YouTube channel, and we want to do more videos soon. This is also our second podcast with our first interview, of which we are very proud. When it comes to the discussion of nuclear power in the media, more often than not, it appears either negative or non-existent. This is why we have begun to compile a database of pro-nuclear media articles, which can be viewed on a es public drive on our website, under the resources page. You can support us and our mission online at www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. Again, that's www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some A&E swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees to keep our organization running. We are a group of almost 10 volunteers at the moment. If you want to support this podcast specifically, you can donate on a per-episode basis at patreon.com, link in the description. Well, thank all of you for tuning into this episode. We hope to have at least one more episode up by the end of the year. This is Phil Ord of A&E's Climate Fix Podcast. We'll see you next time.